0: Welcome to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. I'm your host, Natalie Kavoric,
1: And I'm Tara Vanderdeusen, and together we bring you our professional farming opinions on a mix of entertainment, facts, and trending news articles in the ag and food space.
0: We keep our fingers on the pulse so you guys don't have to.
1: Welcome back to episode 65 of Discover Ag. Today is a really fun episode. We actually have our once a monthly advocacy episode for you. So this is where we interview guests on different like beef, dairy, agriculture, sustainability efforts. And today we have Dr. Jessica think with Merck Animal Health. I hope I said your last name wrong. (laughs) We didn't talk about that before we went live, but Jessica's background originates in meat science. She initially started at Merck, focusing on meat quality and Uh, customer acceptance of research in meat from animals administered with animal health products. And now she is more focused on the packer and processor level on sustainability, animal welfare, traceability, and meat safety and quality. So Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you.
2: Glad, Glad to be here.
0: Yes, we're very excited to dive into today's topics and discussions. Um, We have some good stuff. We actually polled you guys. I put it out on my Twitter. Boltar and I asked on our Instagram pages. Mm Um, what you guys would want to hear from someone that, you know, has this background in the Packer processing level. And you guys came up with some good ones. We're going to dive into, you know, what the process looks like if antibiotics are found in meat, you know, how they're testing and everything. Um, As far as that goes, we're going to hit that origin of label discussion that everyone loves to talk about. Um, We're also going to probably talk a little bit about like feedlots and their role, you know, when it comes to processing. So lots of good stuff um, that we're really, really excited to dive into today.
1: So before we dive into all that, we actually want to thank um, this episode's sponsor, which is Merck Animal Health, and uh, just a little bit about them. So in this industry, your name is everything. It's the legacy you fight to live up to and work to leave behind. Merck Animal Health has 50 plus year history of providing the products that cattle need to stay healthy and that producers need to stay sustainable. With innovation, passion, and integrity, Merck Animal Health will do what's right for your operation and for you. That is why Merck Animal Health works. Visit mahcattle.com to see how Merck Animal Health can work for you. So, all right, jumping right into this. um, Given your background, Jessica, in packaging packing and processing. I think it really makes the most sense to start there. And I feel like kind of to start the conversation, both Natalie and I have toured packing plants and we both left being super impressed. And so maybe for people who have never seen like a packing plant, can you just give kind of some background on it? What it's like, what you can expect, because I know I I left wishing people could go and see it because it was such a positive experience for me. Right. So
2: just the whole packing plant, it it's uh, very unknown. Like when the animals go behind those walls, a lot of people don't understand um, what's going on and um, the level of efficiency and care that the animals receive all the way through till they're a meat product. Uh, so when their animals arrive, they are offloaded and they are weighed, they are evaluated. So the USDA has inspectors out there that are looking at the animals, making sure that they are healthy and fit for consumption uh, to be harvested. Those that aren't are loaded back out or whatever happens. Those animals that aren't fit for consumption do not enter the food supply chain. So I think that's very important place to start is that only the ones that are healthy and fit for consumption go on through the plant. And then when you start looking at it, it's a very um, low stress. The packers try to keep it a very low stress environment for those animals. Uh, the There's not a lot of yelling or a lot of loud noises. It's, it's a very calm process for that animal all the way through to the knock box. And then once, once that process gets started, it's, it's so efficient and those animals are on a shackle. Once they're knocked, they're on a shackle, they're going through and it's tagged. So there's a whole traceability um, component to this as well. So they know where those animals came from before they are knocked. then that um, traceability is attached to that, how they're being held. And through that entire process, that traceability is continued with that animal from whatever lot it is. And as you go through, um, whether it's taking the hide off and, and losing those ear tags or those personal identifiers, they're not lost because the animal is still, that information is tied to the trolley system as that animal is rolled um, through the packing plant. And then same thing with once their um, guts, um, those those meats that maybe we don't um, necessarily eat, the liver, the kidney, Um, even the heads, they're all still tied to that animal. So um, tracing anything from like you had talked about in the intro an antibiotic residue issue or something, um, it's easy. It's fairly simple to contain um, where that animal came from and all of its parts and get those back before anything can enter into a food supply chain. So then you're going through and you see um, those animals, they Lose they, Their guts come out, then they're going through, then they get chilled um, because the marbling needs to set up. So we're talking beef processing right now. Um, the marbling has to set up so they get chilled for 24 to 48 hours before they're graded. Um, that simply means, uh, again, USDA inspectors are here throughout the entire process. Then USDA graders evaluate the meat to determine the quality um, and the age of that animal. Through visual cues. And then that animal, once it's graded, it's sorted out. Again, still tracking that animal with its trolley system. It's sorted out into whether it's choice or select or if it's a program. Um, then, once it's sorted out, then whenever they're running those programs through the fab floor, um, when they're fabricating that animal into its different parts. Uh, So it's rib, it's chuck, it's loin, it's round, whatever that part is, it's, it's still traced um, to that trolley system. And then um, that's how, once it's broken down into those major parts, then it goes off into different lines and it's such an efficient process. Then it's broken down and it's put in a box and it's put in cold storage and then it's um, shipped to the distribution. So It's a very efficient process um, to getting beef to a consumer at a very cost-efficient way.
0: Yeah. So first off, thank you for clarifying that this is beef processing. And that's probably for everyone tuning in. That is what I would think the majority, I mean, Tara and I are beef girlies. So that's kind of (laughs) the majority of what we'll be speaking about. I feel like I'll get into uncharted territories if we even try and talk about any (laughs) other of the animal proteins. So I'm happy to stick with beef. Um, One thing you kept mentioning that Um, i picked up on was you know this the usda graders the usda um you know outside the facility when they're um evaluating the animals too now that is just going to be at plants that are usda certified correct correct Mm -hmm. so when we get down to um you know smaller plants is it just like the owner you know like the butcher essentially who's making those kind of same um calls because they're not going to be having you know someone off-site to you know so on their facility to make
2: it. Right. So there's also state inspections um that can happen. So it just it depends on how big that plant is and what um type of inspection that plant has to have to be able to sell that meat um to the public.
1: So I guess going into that a little bit um, there's a ton of conversation around like direct to consumer and like all of that right now. What would you say are some of the pros and cons versus like direct to consumer versus like a traditional package packaging plant buying at the grocery store? Like what are those pros and cons?
2: So I think there's a lot, it just depends on what you're looking for Um, when you're purchasing that meat or when you're selling your meat, whatever, whichever end of the spectrum you're on. Um, But I think that you've got to look at, uh, from a direct to consumer perspective, if you're purchasing it or if you're selling it, it's most of the time local. Um, so it's from somewhere close to where you live. It's um, a lot. So depending on the situation, a lot of times you know who your farmer is. Um, so if I'm, so we raise beef that we, Um, harvest and then we eat ourselves. So I know who that farmer is. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I even know what that cow was. So there's a lot of trust um, when you know who the farmer is and if they're your friend or if you um, have been to their operation, just being able to see and trust and feel and do those kinds of things um, are are definitely a pro when you think about that direct to consumer um, part. A con is the upfront cost. Um, so a lot of times in these direct to consumer, you're buying a quarter or a half a beef or uh, a whole beef, whatever it is. But there's a lot of upfront cost that's not spread out during each purchasing trip to the grocery store. If you are buying from a packer, like just normal beef from a grocery store, and um, then you also have to have your freezer space and availability. And um, that's something that you have to consider whenever you are purchasing. Do you have that space to hold that meat? and, um, spread that cost over time. Uh, when you think about the packer side of things, then you also have to think that they are so, like I talked about a second ago, they're so efficient that they can, um, offer you that beef at a reduced cost because they have so many thousands of pounds more that they're selling. And then you also have, um, Sometimes with that direct to consumer, it's not as consistent of a product. So sometimes uh, you get uh, choice, or sometimes it depends on the genetics of the cattle, um, whether you're getting choice product or select product, or if it's grass fed. Um, so there, there can be some differences. It just depends on how that direct to consumer stuff is, um, product is advertised and marketed. Um, but then the con there, like I talked about a second ago, the con for the packer beef is. There, there's a trust um, issue. It's You don't know who raised it. You don't know if um, that product I bought in Texas really came from the Pacific Northwest or if it came from Nebraska. So um, there's not that local. There's some transportation costs added to it. There's all different kinds of things. So there's pros and cons to each side of direct-to-consumer versus um, packer beef. It just depends on what
1: you want as a consumer. So it's funny you talk about trust because both Natalie and I, we eat the meat off of our, like our, my dairy and Natalie off of her ranch, but then we both sell into the commercial supply chain as well. And so it's like, you wish you could tell people like buying like meat in the grocery store, like there, there's still that trust there. There's still that farmer. Like, I mean, if I'm being honest, like I'm mine our dairy cow so they're probably like the hamburger meat at McDonald's. And I'm like, but the same care goes into raising that like hamburger meat at McDonald's as, what I, the steak I feed my family from the dairy cow that we harvested. And so I went like that, that trust thing is such a crucial piece of this. And I don't think people always understand that even like, whether you buy direct consumer, or you buy meat at the grocery store, like it's often from family farms, like just like ours. Um, and so I, I don't know that, that trust piece is so interesting. And it, it's really the hard part of the conversation when you're buying traditional conventional meat at a grocery store.
2: Absolutely. And, and I will buy the stuff at the grocery store, just like I would buy the, I would eat out of my freezer. It's just more convenient for me to go to my freezer. So
0: carrying on that trust conversation, do you think, um, I mean, I feel like that's kind of one of the big, as you you know said in the, the beginning, that kind of the processing packing industry, it's kind of closed off a little bit, right? Like I do think one of the core problems uh, consumers have with it is that they're missing that trust, like that exposure. Do you think there's like certain things that they're working towards to like create more trust? Or I just feel like it's kind of a big pain point for that industry.
2: There are, there's just, there's some things that consumers don't want to see. And, and that's what you start looking at a lot of these newer plants that are going in. Um, You guys got to take a tour of a, more established plant. Um, But some of these newer plants are making hallways where you can see the entire process, but not be out there in the middle of it. Um, There's a safety aspect of having visitors tour through a plant as well. I mean, there's carcasses above your head that are 850 pounds. Um, There's knives that are, while they're being held by the employees, they are All over the place. And so you do have to be careful. You have to pay attention. And I think there's a safety component as well. So with these new plants there, it's behind a, a window, but you can see the entire process and it helps gain that trust.
1: Yeah, I've t- actually toured two different plants, and one was um, a larger facility. I mean, it was not huge, but it was a larger facility and was definitely set up to take on tours. And you could tell, like, there was more you could see. And then I've had another one where it was a much smaller packaging packing plant. And it had, you know, things kind of had to stop when we walked in the door. Like, we <laughs> were right there um, throughout the entire process. And so, yeah, there's obviously like safety, um, biosecurity, like, just so mm-hmm. many different concerns that you have to think about. And, um, So yeah, it's not always feasible to have everybody come and tour everything. But it's interesting to know that there are steps being taken for those packaging packing plants to um, make some changes. Absolutely.
0: It's also interesting that you said uh, consumers don't want to see everything. And I might get thrown under the bus a little bit for what I'm about to say. But there's, you know, a lot of conferences you attend or a lot of narratives out there that are like, you know, the ag industry needs more transparency, like transparency, 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 that's what we need. And I'm a little bit in the camp that's like, there are some things that people who are removed from our, you know, agriculture, no matter the context we put on that video or circumstance, um, it's just different when your boots on the ground on the operation in it 365 a days a year, you know, for 30 years of your life. And so I'm a little bit like, I think there's this, there's a transparency up until a point. And then there's like, we're experts, let us, you know, trust us and our authority and our expertise. And so I agree. I think that kind of comes into play with the packer industry too. Like there has to be some transparency up until a point. And then, like you said, there's other issues where we have to, you know, whether it's from the bioavailability standpoint, have to cut it off or from the point, like, maybe you don't want to see what goes on anyway. You know, like, here's what goes on. We're being open about it. Doesn't mean you have to see it and seeing it doesn't mean it's going to be any better or different.
2: Right. Absolutely.
0: So one thing you also mentioned back um, in the original question was cost. And I kind of want to dive into that a little bit because I feel like that's something I hear all the time when I'm tuning into other podcasts or reading other articles. And I'm going to just dumb this down for the simplicity of it. But I feel like people are like, well, why don't we just create more packing plants then right like everyone knows there's kind of a bottleneck there's the main four packers and I feel like after that the next question's like well why isn't there just more like why don't we just put up more can we kind of maybe dive into like why we don't just have more (laughs) and maybe the history like maybe how we got to the big four too like what happened in I think it was the 70s right Is kind of when everything took place to kind of set us up for how we are now maybe we can dive into that
2: yeah so let's let's start there so there's um the packing industry is very consolidated. Uh, You don't just see packers everywhere. You see them right here in the major cattle feeding regions. Um, So they're located where the cattle are. And then the cattle are located where the feed stuffs that you um, grow the animals with. That's, That's where the, so you have your feed. So your cattle are located near your feed. Then your plants are located near your cattle. And so that's kind of where we came to where we are today, where it's in a very narrow strip. And and don't get me wrong, there are those one-offs that are um, on the West Coast or the East Coast, but really right here in the middle of the US is where you see um, most of your uh, cattle being fed in most of your packing plants. Um, so why are there not more? And why are we not putting more here in the center? Uh, that's that's a very good question. It, it really comes down to packing plants are very capital intense. Whether you're putting up a small one, a medium sized packing plant, or even a large one with a lot of shackle space to compete with the major four, um, it's a very capital intense um, operation that starts with your land costs. And then you have to have all the permits and the local buy-in for it. Then you have to have the labor source. So where are you getting your labor? Are you bringing, are people supposed to move to where this packing plant is? Or are you stealing labor labor from some other industry in that town? And then you have all of the, um, then you have the cattle. So how much cattle are available um, to fulfill your plant? Um, and what are you taking, is there an excess amount of cattle in that location? So you're not taking away from someone else or are you having to split? So both of you don't have full capacity anymore. So there's so many things to consider um, before you even get started. And then once you're started, it's that cost piece of, well, they're established. They already have the labor. They already have the building. um, They already have a pretty steady cattle supply. So they can spread their costs a lot easier. So that's why when they bid your cattle up, when you put a plan in, then you are already starting at a higher cost to break even. So then you're selling your product for more money um, to hit that break even. And they don't have to do that um, to the extent that you do because they're established and they've already paid off their building, their equipment, their land, whatever that is. So there's are so many things when you think about costs that um, go into this that it's, it's very hard. And if they do start and they get to that point, then they have to be willing to bleed a little bit and, and take some loss, big or little. Um, and then once you get that momentum going, then that loss decreases year after year. But you're talking 15, 20 years, Um mm-hmm sometimes to recoup and start seeing a profit.
1: This is so interesting to me, this part of it, because um, I know this is on the dairy side, but our co-op recently built a um, milk processing plant and so i like dipped my toe in the tiniest bit of seeing those numbers and what it looked like and what our returns will be and how much it's going to cost us and just the capital investment and it's mind-boggling like it just i remember leaving those meetings just being like i cannot believe how much this is going to cost and things aren't getting better like covid like we looked at pricing uh building a plant before covid and post covid and it was even more astronomical with building cost, stainless steel cost, all of those things that it really made me like just appreciate these plants that like no matter what type of plant meat milk, all of them that we already have that are existing that are running super efficiently and how much, how much it goes into our food system like us having all of these so it's it is an interesting conversation i mean like we wish there was more milk processing plants but like the capital investment to make that happen is just not always feasible
2: absolutely and i and i think some of it comes down to the industry as a whole is very efficient and they're keeping prices low while inflation is getting what i feel out of control (laughs) um across the board, these plants and milk processor, meat plant, whatever it is, they're keeping food affordable, as affordable as possible um, for everyone, for our country. So I think that's, that's very important to remember. That's a great point. Yeah.
0: Um, Nebraska has been trying to push through that uh, plant. It finally did sustainable beef. Um, I feel like forever. And I think Walmart had finally had to come in. And I think that's probably why it got pushed through. I mean, so even when you do get enough of people who have the capital to do it, sometimes like it, like to everyone's point, the, the numbers behind it are just kind of insane. Um, I, so... You mentioned two things basically there. You mentioned the cost, which I think everyone kind of initially thinks of a little bit, but you open that up with talking about uh, location and how important that is. And I don't think that that is something that um, everyone initially thinks about. So I'm glad you brought that up because like you said, sometimes I think um, whether as consumers or you know shareholders or whoever is trying to drive the decision activists, we make um, claims or ask for something that we don't fully understand the implications of. And so to your your point for this example, it's like, okay, you know, everyone's like, we'll put up another packing plant. And so we do. And it's in an area that, like you said, maybe isn't geographically close to, you know, large amounts of number to send the animals through. So then we have to truck and transport, right? So then we're looking at, okay, you know, what does that play for people who are looking at environmental standpoint? Like, what does that do to carbon footprint of transporting from an animal husbandry standpoint, which I think everyone should care about, you know, whether you're on the activist side, I mean, they should care about that the most, right? It's like, It's not good for those animals to be on the truck any longer than they have to. And that's to your point. We know why we have plants in certain areas is because we can transport animals short amount of distance, short amount of time on the on the truck. And so I think that that location standpoint or point is just a really I just kind of wish that would enter the conversation as much as the cost portion does. So thanks for bringing that up.
1: Yeah, so switching gears a little bit, um, I wanna get into what it looks like with the antibiotic side of things. Like, so what what does that look like? What happens if antibiotics are found? Um, just all of those things. If, I don't know exactly where you wanna kick it off, but that's kind of <laughs> where I wanna take the conversation next.
2: All right, so um, we have the, in the US, we have the US National Residue Program um, that tests for more than a hundred different compounds in your meat, poultry, and egg products. Uh, We also have a testing program for milk, but again, we're gonna stick with the beef, which I'm more familiar (laughs) with. Um, So they have, meat and poultry products have been tested since 1967. So for years, um, the US has been monitoring our food supply system um, for different compounds that um, we don't want to enter the food supply. And then egg products started getting tested in 1995. So with that, so I kind of talked about it in the very beginning about the food safety inspection service. Um, They're the ones that are looking. um, So when we go through the plant, they are the ones that are in the plant evaluating the meat and evaluating the offal or the Liver, the guts, the lungs. um, They're looking for any kind of indication of illness that might not have been present in that live animal. So we have a second chance to catch anything that shouldn't be entering into the food supply. And then um, they do the food safety inspection service. Their inspectors take a quick swab, um, typically of the liver or the kidney, because the liver or the kidney is where basically the last place that the compound will gather before it exits the body of the animal. So it will have the most of any compound present. Um, So they'll take a quick swab. Those are also edible organs. Um, So that's why if they're most present in those organs, then we also don't need to enter the food supply with them. Um, So they take a quick swab, uh, presence or absence, and then say that that swab came back positive. Then they will take that carcass, that animal and all of its parts, um, separate it off and send it to a lab for further testing. Um, That's when they actually determine, yes, it's positive. It was a true positive and um, this is the compound that it's positive for, and they quantify how much of that um, compound is present. Um, so then when that happens um, and say that it's positive, it has it's over the maximum residue limit, it cannot enter the food supply chain. So it will not be served. You will not buy it in the grocery store. It cannot, it has to be um, discarded. Same thing with milk. If milk's found positive, they discard it. It does not enter into the human supply chain. Um, So really, once that happens, if, like I said, this is all traced, so they know which lot that animal came from. They know which producer um, who is associated with that lot. They know who sent that animal that tested positive. So then they go back to that producer. That producer understands why they don't get paid for that animal. And then um, if that happens twice within 12 months, that producer's name, they basically get blacklisted. They get put on this list. Um, it's called the residue repeat violator list. And it's publicly that's available. Awesome. Yeah, it's publicly
1: available. You can like go on and look. It's like I like the walk of shame. For it people. is.
2: And, and, and packers use that. So when you're trying to sell your cattle to a packer and you've been on this repeat violator list, um, they're not gonna take your cattle because that's extra work for them. Um and so it's just one of those things you don't want on that list because you may not have an outlet for the re- for your for the rest of your animals. Tara, when um, you toured
0: a oh sorry, Tara, when you toured a plant, did you see them do the swab or anything? I feel like I can
1: no, visualize I don't. that. I can't either. I don't remember them doing that. So I it must have not been a part of the tour. I, I feel like this was like all new information for me. Like it, and know. it
2: happens. And you, you aren't, if you're not paying attention and know what you're looking for, I, it's so quick that, um, and a lot of times those livers and kidneys are somewhere in another room when they're, oh, um, so is, you may is. not have toured, um, taken a side tour through that area. So it just it depends. Takes- um, it's a random sample, and then, so they have to take so many random samples, but they also have to, t- they take targeted samples. So like if those lungs looked bad or if that liver looked bad, they may take that sample anyway. So they, they take the random samples and then they take targeted ones based on where they feel
1: they need to. Interesting. And does it,
0: I mean, it has to happen immediately. So does it just like turn a certain color or do they, I mean, they, do you know? And you, I mean, I've like cars have,
1: Completely
2: new to me. <laughs> no, I've never seen the test, but I do know that it's a quick presence absence test. Yeah. Cool. Okay.
1: I feel like Natalie's pharmacist side is like coming out on this. Like, yeah. her like head nod. <laughs> if you're not watching the YouTube video of this, like Natalie's like getting really into the weeds on this. Oh. Um.
0: Okay, well, um, I guess pivoting again a little bit about, um, well, kind of sticking with, I mean, you mentioned, you know, liver, kidney, so kind of shifting into like the byproduct discussion. Um, you know, can we maybe dive into nose to tail? I mean, that's one of the favorite things Tar and I love to talk about that's, you know, a sustainable portion of the beef industry is how much we use, you know, all of the animals. So maybe we could talk about what happens um, you know in the processing plant like what that looks like you kind of mentioned it earlier about like the separating and the different you know how it the animal gets broken down but also kind of maybe also that sustainability portion too we could have that conversation
2: yes so um people always like to joke uh, we use in the cattle industry we use everything but the moo uh, in the byproduct world so um whether it's the blood so initially the blood it goes into this place I say a place. It goes down into a pit, and um, then you can sell all of these parts, whether it's for pennies or fractions of pennies on the dollar. But um, the blood um, can go into adhesives, minerals, um, blood meal. If you have heard of meat and blood meal, um, medicine, lab research. Uh, you you use all you use blood for all different sorts of things. Uh, bones can go into glass, fertilizer um, when they're ground, um, hair. Uh, something you don't think about is the hair from these animals. Um, go into air filters, brushes, um, insulation, plaster. Uh, the manure, and that's more from the farm side. In um, the live animal, you take the manure, you can spread it out as fertilizer, nitrogen, and phosphorus. Um, And then when you're at the plant, the internal organ, this is where I geek out a little bit is the organs um, can go into instrument strings, tennis racket strings, um, hormones, enzymes, those kinds of products that you find um, at your nutrition centers. Um, Fat is chewing gum, um, candles, detergent, deodorant. A lot of personal care items come from the fat, um, rendered fat of these animals, creams, lotions, um, crayons. Something oh, you don't I know. did not
1: know that one. I knew yeah, that one. Our, uh,
2: paint, crayons, um, and then chalk, fireworks, and explosives. Um, so then you have the skin, um, gelatin, flavorings, uh, medicine, candies that kind of thing and then um hooves and horns like this is one that um you don't normally think about but uh hooves and horns can go into pet food photo film um nail files
1: wow i knew toothbrushes there's something in toothbrushes that's from cattle it's wild
2: um so so really any there's so much when you start looking around just your house and um, the things in your kitchen and in your bathroom that come from everything but the moo, um, that you don't you don't necessarily think about on a daily basis. Yeah, when I um, was still
0: practicing in pharmacy, I was in uh, coumadin management, which is warfarin, and so that's um, has to do with like blood thinning in the heart. And we had so many patients that were on pig heart valves, um, mm-hmm. and so I always like whenever again activists or you know people who are trying to whoever it may be is trying to for the end of animal agriculture i'm like i just don't think they really understand what they're asking for as far as how um everyone just thinks of like meat and milk um but how far these animals like are truly inserted into society and like everyday products and very um i think heparin actually also comes from um is animal based there's uh, i can't i can't remember if it's pig or cat i think it's pig too but there are so many important uh, medicines in the pharmaceutical industry that we have to have animals for
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, Thank you. There's a bunch in there I did not know and lots I knew. I feel like you could probably list off like literally millions of things that animal products are in. Um, Okay, so changing directions once again. uh, I want us to touch on the uh, origin of label kind of discussion and... um, I know this is like a hot topic. There's a lot of emotions, a lot of feelings, um, but maybe we can at least just give some overview of what that is, what the conversation is, what the facts are there. Sure.
2: Um, so country of origin labeling, uh, it's basically a law that went into effect that required retailers to notify their customers. So basically put on the lab- on that meat label um, where the animal was... Um, born, raised and harvested um, or where that product is from. So fruits and vegetables, it's product of Mexico or product of USA, wherever it is. And then your meat had to ha- have born, raised and harvested on it. Um, so this this rule um, went into effect um, for f- whole muscle and ground meats. And like I said, fruits and vegetables, nuts. Um, so there's a handful of um, products that had to have this Origin on its label. Then um, there was a final rule that amended um, the the initial rule that um, removed muscle cuts and ground beef or ground product from beef and pork. So still, you can go to the grocery store and see it on label. Some some grocers have removed it, some haven't, um, but they don't. They aren't required anymore um, to use that in um, beef and pork. So it's just something that's there. Some people look at it. I'm one of those that when I do purchase meat from the grocery store, I'm not looking at wh- whether it came from Mexico, Canada, or the US, I where it was born, where it was raised, where it was harvested. I'm looking for the quality of the product and the price because I want to get the best value um, for my dollar and to feed my family. I don't have a preference of what country it came from. Um, Same thing with bananas or any fruit that I get. Um, We have a seasonality thing here in the US where we can't grow fruit all the time. So um, that's not something I look at, but I do know that there's people out there that do. Um, And it's very important for them to have it. So I think it comes down to a personal preference and whether you utilize um, that
1: information or not. Yeah, it's interesting to me that this conversation always like revolves around meat, but it doesn't get talked about nearly as much like in fruits and vegetables. Like every fruit and vegetable I'm probably getting right now is not from the United States. So it's it's just interesting, like the dynamics there of like different food products, people have differences of like opinion on. Right. Like, <laughs> no, I mean, I feel like there's probably people that are super passionate about it for meat, but don't think twice like you said about like bananas.
0: So I'm going to um, sound like an idiot, especially <laughs> given my um, experience in the meat industry. But I thought there was a clause in NAFTA that said something about, we can't, we can't, we're not supposed to actually put, like I thought like NAFTA makes so it. So that's what the,
2: that was part of the, re- they had to remove that. Right. Um, but there, you're
0: saying there are still some labels out there that, I mean, cause I, I literally, I under the same camp as all well of you guys. I mean, I don't, No, the last time I've ever picked up a package of beef in the grocery store just because I always have it in my freezer. But there are some out there that still have labels on there. I thought – I just didn't think they existed at all.
2: I haven't honestly looked um, to see. I I do pay attention to the fruits and vegetables just because I'm like, hey, my bananas came from Mexico this week. But I haven't paid attention to the meat case
1: because we don't buy a lot of stuff from the grocery store. Yeah. We're kind of terrible about that. We, <laughs> I feel like Natalie, my weekly market research. I will say, I eat a lot more steak than ground beef, so I do buy from a local butcher because I like my filet. That's what I had for dinner last night. But I need—I feel like I need to start paying attention. I'm going to the grocery store today, and I feel like I'm going to scope out the meat counter for us.
0: So awesome. one thing um, we could maybe hopefully talk a little bit about because I don't um, think it's well understood why uh, we are like importing exporting cattle um and can we maybe have the conversation around like lean fat versus um you know like excess fat in the US and how we're kind of you know melding the i guess melding I don't know if there's a better word but i mean that's why you know part of the reason why we're imp- importing right is i mean because mm-hmm. we are taking that excess fat we have we're mixing it with lean fats that we're or lean proteins that we're bringing in and then creating that product i mean other countries don't have that excess
2: right um so kind of back to the whole inspector thing. So anything that comes in also has to be inspected and meet our standards. And when we do import um, protein from South America or from Australia, whatever it may be, it's nine times out of 10 grass fed, extremely lean product. Um, They don't have the corn um, and the availability of feedstuffs to have the to put the fat on the animal that we do. Um, A lot of our product is choice and higher. And so when you grade, when you grind that and you make ground beef, our lean point would really be like 60, 40, 70, 30. Um, But we also in the U.S. have a, are very health conscious um, for the most part and have a preference for 80, 20 lean or 90, 10, um, whatever it may be. And so when we want that leaner, patty or that leaner ground beef, um, without all the extra grease, um, and flavor in it, then we import in and we mix. Like you said, we grind that imported beef with our, um, fat to give it that flavor, um, that we desire at that leaner, um, lean point. So that's kind of how that, that works, especially, um, in your food service patties. Uh, so, um, restaurants, um, retail, most of those have
1: uh,
2: been blended.
1: That makes sense. Natalie, anything you wanted to add to that?
0: I don't think so. She said it much better than I did, so thank you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, made a I lot said meld. Sense. I think
0: mix was the word I was looking for, which is what you used. <laughs>
1: uh, okay, so kind of to, like, wrap things up here, do we think we have time for, like, a... What do you want to ask next? you want to wrap things up with the final question or what do you want to do?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I guess my, like what's next for the packing industry, right? Like, I mean, I think there's a lot in legislature right now that um, is coming to attention of the big four, um, you know, trying to change a little bit of the, I guess, the system that we currently have. So I guess kind of, you know, your perspective and your thoughts of what you think maybe the next couple of years look like when it comes to, you know, the way we're structured right now, as far as packaging and processing.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think that you're going to see a lot of change. Uh, you may see some new players come in uh, if we're given five years. If we're looking at the five-year outlook, um, you may see some new players come in. But as a whole, I think the packing industry will continue um, to provide at a very beef at a very efficient um, level. I think that what we're really going to um, the real constraints going to be our cattle supply uh, are, there's been so much of the U that it's gone through a drought and, um, then they've shipped their cows. So we've seen the cow slaughter numbers, um, increase, um, which means we don't have those cows to reproduce. And so coming for the next two or three years, I think cattle supply is going to really drive, um, the packing industry and just being able to, um, have that supply and keep those sh- shackles full is going to be a challenge. Uh, that's why I think that there's, so in our industry, we've been seeing this shift in this trend towards dairy beef um, where we're crossing um, beef animals with dairy animals um, to start helping fill in some of that supply gap um, that we don't see from our traditional beef animals. So I think um as a whole we're just gonna have to I think I think it'll be a challenge I really do I think the beef industry as a whole whether you're a producer or a packer, um,
1: the supply issue is going to be a challenge for everybody I'm glad you briefly mentioned <clears throat> beef on dairy and we won't get into it but I, I agree with you like right when you were saying like you know Tara
0: just wanted to bring dairy into the conversation I'm not, I mean
1: if dairy is finally having conversations about beef you guys should I like you know, Pat us on the back. This is like, yeah. <laughs> um, But no, it, it's really interesting. I think it'll be a super interesting five years with just the way things are going. Um, like, it, it, I don't know, just, there's so many different factors coming into play in this moment. Um, that'll be interesting to see where we're at in five years to kind of like look back and reflect. Yep. That's what I think. That's my my dairy, my two cents on the dairy side. All right. We have one final question for you. That's a fun question that we wanted to ask you. Um, it's two parts. I wanted to ask you, um, how do you cook your steak and what is your favorite cut of steak? Oh, well,
2: the easy one is a ribeye um, <laughs> because I really, so I really like the spinalis muscle or that ribeye cap muscle that you have on the outside of the ribeye. Um, it's full of flavor, and that's my absolute favorite. So I eat the rest, and then that's kind of my dessert piece. Welcome um, like a true I, meat scientist. Yeah, I
1: was <laughs> right. about to say this is the most like scientist answer I've ever heard. <laughs> so that's my favorite cut. That was easy.
2: Um, so how do I cook it? Like that's something that I have always been: you grow your steak, you grow your steak, you grow your steak. But i Um, got a Blackstone and a flat top grill and kind of like a restaurant where they uh, flash fry or they um, sear it real fast and then they put it in an oven. I just, I've been using my Blackstone and I, I hate to say that I like it. I really like it kind of more than my grill, my traditional grill, but um, really just sear that flavor in and then cook it on a little lower temp and I like it medium rare. There. That's How funny you, you guys- say that.
1: Mm-hmm. I cooked a steak. I, I cook. I never cook steak. My husband is in charge of cooking steak. He <laughs> grills it always, and I recently had to do a bunch of cooking. And I like seared it on my cast iron inside, and then did the mm-hmm. oven method. And even my husband was like, "This was amazing." And I was like, "I cannot believe like Mister mm-hmm. Grillmaster himself is actually saying my oven cooked steak was <laughs> good, if not better than his."
0: Right. There you guys have it. You have a new dinner challenge tonight. Either grill your steak or try it Tara's way. And if you're feeling up to it, you can Google what Jessica said about the muscle and <laughs> have a little anatomy lesson with your dinner.
1: Uh, I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Yeah. Thanks for Thanks, thanks so much, everyone, for listening to Discover Ag, where every Thursday we cover the top three industry news pieces you guys need to know this week in the world of ag and food. And special thank you to Dr. Jessica Fing for joining us um, on today's advocacy episode and for Merck Animal Health for sponsoring it. Be sure to visit mahcattle.com to see how Merck Animal Health can work for
2: you.
1: If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it and leave us a review. If you want more during the week, you can always follow us on Instagram at discoverag underscore at Natalie Kavoric and at Tara Vaynerdison.
0: See you guys next week.